from today's gospel. And he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and break and gave to his disciples to set before them. And they did set them before the people. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Our Lord Jesus was not an American, nor was he African or Asian or European or even Arab. He was and still is a Jew. He's Jewish. And while we often give lip service to this fact, the church has not always done a sufficient job of allowing Jesus' Jewish context to influence our understanding of his life, his ministry, his teaching. Take today's gospel account, for example. We read of a familiar miracle, one of the few recorded in all four of the New Testament gospels, and one that is repeated four times by our annual lectionary. It's an account of Jesus feeding the hungry crowd by miraculously multiplying a few loaves of bread and a couple small fish. On the surface, the account is often presented as an example of our Lord's power over creation. He can just make stuff out of nothing. It is also seen as a beautiful example of Jesus' compassion for his followers and his promise to nourish us, his church, always and to supply our every need. The disciples, as usual, are a bit dull in the passage. And so we see yet again another example of them just not quite getting it when it comes to Jesus' true identity. Now, while all of these lessons from the text are certainly true, and they're definitely taught within the passage that was read this morning, I want to suggest to us that Jesus' miracle here only makes complete and full sense when we take into account the Jewishness of Jesus and of the crowd that surrounded him that day. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day were eagerly anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, a man who would, in their minds, liberate Israel from Roman rule and usher in God's kingdom on earth. Many, many Old Testament passages prophesy the coming of the Messiah, and they give clues as to what he will do and what sort of person he will be like. Now, one of the more important passages about the Messiah is found in Deuteronomy 18, particularly verse 15, Deuteronomy 18, 15. And it says that Moses, Moses is this great lawgiver and deliverer of Israel. And Moses speaks to the nation and he says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. So Moses prophesies that the Lord will give Israel a new prophet. But he won't just be any old prophet. No, he will be like Moses himself. He will be the who was the greatest of the prophets in Israel's mind, who performed miracles by the power of Yahweh. He received direct revelation from God. And he had rescued Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt. Even more... The later rabbis, these are, these are the Jewish religious leaders who lived in the centuries between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They said, they recognized that this reference of Moses, it, it's going to have to be to who we call the Messiah. Why? 
who else could be counted equal to Moses except the coming Messiah? They also concluded that because the Messiah would be the greatest and final prophet, he too would not only have to be like Moses, but he would have to be greater than Moses. The Messiah, said the Jewish rabbis, in the centuries leading up to Jesus' birth and during his own ministry, would be a new and better Moses, who did what Moses did, but even grander, more spectacular. Now, one interesting facet of Moses' ministry that the rabbis believed the Messiah would actually duplicate was this miraculous giving of manna from heaven. If you'll recall, Israel was wandering in the wilderness, and they were constantly complaining to God that they had nothing to eat. And so Moses interceded on their behalf to God, and God sent bread from heaven. Not only this, but we read that he also sent quail for them to eat. So they had quail and bread as much as they wanted. It wasn't too shabby of a plate, if you ask me. For 40 years, though, Israel never went hungry. Manna, wafer breads, I like to think it's like Krispy Kreme donuts, and then the finest quail you can come up with. This is what they're eating constantly in the wilderness. But once they enter the promised land, once they go over Jordan, that miracle ceases, and they have to cultivate the land for their own food. Now, the rabbi said the Messiah, when he comes, will once again give heavenly bread to sustain Israel until she should enter the true promised land, which is eternity with God. Now, I'm sure you see where I'm going with all this by now. St. Mark tells us in the gospel passage this morning that Jesus, a Jewish prophet, by the by, is surrounded by a crowd of hungry Jews. And where are they? The text says that they are gathered in the wilderness. And what does he do? He has compassion, like God in the book of Exodus. And he miraculously supplies them bread. But not from heaven, it doesn't come down from heaven, but it comes from himself, for he is heaven on earth. He is God in the flesh who dwells among us. And he also multiplies fish. Now again, unless we really have this understanding of the Old Testament and this Jewish context, we can miss the significance of that detail. You see, ancient Israel classified fish and birds together. You can read in Genesis 1, birds and fish were created on the same day, the fifth day, because the fish swim in the waters below and the birds swim or fly in the waters above. So they're similar animals in an ancient Jewish mind. And so by multiplying these fish, Jesus is in a Jewish framework duplicating the miracle of the quail from God in the wilderness. The point is this, one greater than Moses has finally arrived. Jesus of Nazareth is the long-expected Messiah of Israel. And in this miracle, he proves himself by giving Israel new manna and new meat from himself. This proof, of course, didn't register with Israel. Rather than flock to Jesus and hail him as the prophet greater than Moses, they eventually arrest him and convict him as a fraud. Rather than give him the diadem of David, they crown him 
with thorns, rather than set him upon a throne where he might feed Israel forever, they nailed him to a tree where he breathed his last through the great pain of asphyxiation. But as we know, this this was all part of the plan. Through his death, Jesus conquered death. He led us, the new Israel, through a new and better exodus and rescued us not from the bondage of Pharaoh, but the bondage of sin, death, and the devil. In his resurrection, God proved that Jesus is indeed the Messiah who reigns over Israel and all the nations forevermore. At this very moment, church, Jesus rules over our world. And he does so as the Jewish Messiah. He still bears the marks of his new exodus. The nail-pierced hands and the wounded side. And important for us this morning, he still provides us with the new and better manna. The bread and meat made from himself. Jesus himself teaches us this in St. John's Gospel, chapter 6. You see, it's the day after Jesus miraculously feeds the crowd. The people come to him asking for manna from heaven. Oh, it seems that a few did in fact recognize that Jesus, uh, what Jesus did in this miracle. He gave them a foretaste of the new and better manna. Jesus responds to the crowd and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The people say in response, give us this bread always. They, this this Jewish crowd on the day after the feeding, the miraculous feeding of the 4,000, are hungry for the Messiah's manna. And it's here that Jesus teaches us where to find the heavenly bread. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. There it is, church. It is the Eucharist that is the new and better manna from heaven, given to us in our pilgrimage through the wilderness of life until Christ returns and leads us into the promised land. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, Christ himself, This is the miraculous transfigured bread that grants eternal life and salvation in Jesus, for it is Jesus. St. Mark, I would tell you this morning, in our gospel reading, wants us to make this exact connection as well. Did you notice the pattern of words used when Jesus multiplies the bread? St. Mark says, and he, that is Jesus, commanded the people to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and break and gave to his disciples to set before the crowd. Took, gave thanks, break, and gave. These are the same four verbs used in the Gospels 
surrounding the institution of the Eucharist. Just as Jesus created miraculous bread on that day some 2,000 years ago in Judea, so does he continue to do each and every time the Eucharist is celebrated. The priest, acting in the person of Christ, takes, gives thanks, breaks, and gives for all to eat, feast, and be fully satisfied upon. For in this meal, we eat the bread of heaven, we drink the cup of immortality, Jesus himself, our Lord, Savior, Messiah, and God. But it takes the eyes of faith to see this, doesn't it? I mean, for on the surface, let's be honest, the Eucharist seems like an outdated ritual with tasteless bread and overly sweet wine, right? Is this really better than manna straight from heaven itself? Yet when the Holy Spirit grants us true sight into this sacrament, we can perceive that it is the very banquet of heaven. At this altar, we are seated in the presence of God. We are on the mountain top with Moses who beheld God's glory. We are the disciples who saw the transfigured Lord. We are invited into the intimate throne room of the blessed Trinity, and we lay down our burdens of sin and of guilt and mortality at his feet. And he fills us not with mystical wafers from the sky, but with himself, with his power, his love, his overwhelming grace and presence. Through this sacrament, the two become one flesh, Christ in us and we in him. Through this sacrament, the sacrifices of the old covenant find fulfillment and the old or in the atonement of Jesus Christ enters our soul. In this sacrament, our sins are purged from us. Our sorrows melt away and hope, true hope of eternity with God is planted deep within us. Just as natural food gives us strength to live our daily life, so does this spiritual food give us the strength to live our Christian life, to love God and turn from sin. Here on this paten and in this chalice is the source and summit of your life, Jesus Christ. The question is, do we believe this? Do we really believe that God meets us here like no other place in our life? For if we truly believe that this sacrament granted us the presence of Christ, then wouldn't we attend to this feast with the utmost reverence, care, and preparation? Wouldn't we long to participate not just weekly but even daily? Wouldn't this moment be the center and highlight of our life? For it is here and here alone in all the world that we actually taste and see that the Lord is good. I like this quote from Padre Pio. He's a 20th century Italian Roman Catholic priest, now saint. He said, if people really knew the value of the mass, there would be policemen at the door to regulate access to the church every time that a mass is celebrated. For, as as another saint says, John Vianney, there is nothing so great as the Eucharist. If God had something more precious, would he not have given it to us? Do you believe this, this morning, church? 
Come, let us adore him. Amen.